0: Welcome everybody again to worship. I know that this is kind of a dicey, um, uncertain time because you just don't know what, you know, you don't know what to, literally, you don't know what to do with your hands, right? I mean, you're supposed to shake it. And... It's like a symbolic touch. Hello. So, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 14, 1 through 11, and this is a transitionary text. It's exciting because it really sort of leads us into where Mark starts to focus from now on. I mean, like from from this point on, Mark is focused on what's ahead for Christ. This text transitions us. From the conflict that Jesus has been experiencing with the leaders of Israel, right? The leaders of the Jews. And it transitions us to this final confrontation. Mark 14, one through eleven is a is one you know small moment of foreshadowing. It foreshadows. What's ahead for Christ in his crucifixion? So if you'll stand with me, let's read together. Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. And at the end of the reading, I'm going to do something really funny. right? This is more, more worship stuff. I'm going to say something. I'm going to say the word of the Lord, right? And then you say, Thanks be, "Thanks be to God," right? So I'm going to we're going to practice it real quick. I'm going to say the word of the Lord, and you're going to say, "Thanks be to God." right? The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <laughs> Here we go. Mark chapter. <laughs> I know Ben's going, what are you doing? (laughs) Uh, Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper... Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, again, thank you for your grace and your mercy that you show us. In giving us this word. Lord we praise you. That you come near to us. In this time of worship. As a gathered people in a special way. Giving to us. The life that we need. Your word. Lord we praise you. And we trust you. In your promise that. As you send your word out, it accomplishes all that you intend. It does what you send it to do. And we ask that you do that now. That you would make our hearts moldable. That you would give us hearts that hear that you would shape us and change us by your spirit through this word. That we would bring honor and glory to you. And we pray that as your people gather in our city and in our country and around the world, that you would feed your people, Lord God. Feed your people with your son. It's in Christ's name that we pray all these things. Amen. Please be seated. So in this Lenten season, we are reflecting on the suffering and the death of Christ. We reflect on His, his brokenness. We reflect on the way that He has poured out. And in an effort to do that, to remind us of what we are celebrating or uh, in a, I guess, a somber, celebrative sort of way, we are doing Lenten readings and we're going to have the ladies come up now for our reading. How has your reflection during Lent been going? As you've reflected on the sufferings of Christ, what He's come to do, what has it done so far? I mean, it's certainly not meant to, you know, make us walk around and Burlap sacks and long faces. What has it done? As we reflect on Christ's broken and poured out life, one of the things that is meant to happen is for us to be reoriented, to see how his death impacts those who follow him, us. We start to see how the pattern of this death, this suffering and death, is a pattern that shapes our lives as believers. And that's what Matthew 14 shows us, this beautiful picture of a broken, poured out kind of living and this woman that we'll see. Now, but Matthew is kind of funny, so we're going to... Take this slow. Because this this passage is actually really, um, um, in the reading of it, it it sort of does what it's trying to do to us. We we really are, I guess, um, uh, maybe caught off guard by some of the things that Matthew 14, one, excuse me, Mark fourteen one through eleven, shows us. So what I'm going to do first, we're going to look at just the first couple of verses and then the last couple of verses, because I want you to see that it's sort of like a sort of like an Oreo, right? The first couple of verses, the last couple of verses are like these bookends, and then we see all this action in the middle. But what goes on on the outside? helps us to understand what's going on on the inside, and what's going on on the inside helps us to understand what's going on on the outside. So Matthew 14, verses 1 and 2, listen to this. Again it says, It was now two days before Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him, for they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Now, pay attention to the detail that Matthew or Mark gives us. He starts out, and he keeps referencing this all throughout this section, but he starts out by reminding us this is the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread just a couple of days before then. What was the Passover about? I mean, we've talked about this before. Quite often, it's a celebration. It's a celebration of remembrance. What are the people remembering? They're remembering how God defeats his enemy, rescuing his people, setting them free from bondage. This is a time, it's a really important feast, right? It requires a heart that belongs to the Lord. Remember the prophets, they would say all the time, you know, God, you, you, you folks, you, you contradict the very thing that these feasts are meant to be by your sin. You just go through the motions, right? So, so we know what was supposed to be happening here. And it's during this time, this is the context, that these chief priests and scribes are seeking Jesus. What's interesting is how Mark describes them. Again, just stay with me. They're seeking to arrest Jesus by stealth. And that doesn't just mean they're trying to do it secretly. What the, mer- what the word means is deceit or guile. Mark, by describing them this way, is giving us a little bit of commentary on who they are and what they're like. Paul would have called these guys sons of the devil. He would have numbered them among those who suppress the knowledge of God. Romans 1, Acts 13. That's where Paul uses this word, and this is what he says about the folks that he uses it against. They're deceitful. Why are they like this with Jesus? Well, we've seen a little bit of this. Mark chapter 11. Ben talked about this. Jesus cleanses the temple. right? And we all know that 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 was a quiet, subtle event. Actually, no, it wasn't. In that enactment, he is saying something about The temple, he's saying something about the nation. You're fruitless. He doesn't just stop there. What we didn't see is, you know, the next passage is where he says, "You you say to this mountain, you know, jump into the sea by faith. What mountain is he talking about? The temple mount. It's a critique. He's saying faith, trusting in him, subverts this. The chief priests and the scribes, they challenge him on his authority to do all this stuff that he's doing. And you know what he does? He spins that around on them. Well, I'll answer your question if you answer my question. Oh, you can't answer it. Well, sorry. <laughs> Undercuts him. Mark chapter 12, he gives this other story, the tenants. Right? Remember this is the story of the tenants that are on you know the land, the owner of the land, and they've kind of got the vineyard. And he sends people, and they keep killing them. Then he sends his son, and they kill him. And Jesus, the ultimate, you know, the, the, the uh, moral of the story is God's going to take all this stuff from you and give it to somebody else. Now, this wasn't lost on the chief priests and the scribes because Mark says they thought that was about them. And you know what they seek to do at that point? They seek to arrest him. We've got we to shut this guy down. The Pharisees and Herodians, they try to trap him by paying taxes, right? Who, who do we give taxes to Caesar? Well, and you've got to know the Pharisees and the Herodians, they're not, they're not friends, they're enemies, but the enemy of my enemy is my friend. He corrects the Sadducees on resurrection. He tells them, you know what, this is the reason you don't understand scriptures. Okay, well, that's not the kind of thing that you say that if you want to. Make friends. And then he says outright, Beware the teaching of the scribes. Watch out for these guys. Now, he's saying all of this in the temple. And then in Mark 13, to his disciples, He tells how the whole thing is going to come down. The temple, Jerusalem, all of it, gone. So we can kind of see why the chief priests and the scribes, they want to get rid of him. The chief priests and the scribes, they think they're on the inside. right? The people of God. We're on God's side, but everything that Jesus says, everything that he does, pushes them to the outside. And what they did in relation to him, what they're seeking to do now by guile, at least in our reading of Mark, is proving his case, proving his case. Jesus has been showing, here's the new inside. Not that stuff. It's me. And so, they seek to get rid of him. Now then, jump to the end of our passage, 10 and 11. Let me read this for you. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. So our story begins with those who think they're on the inside, but they're on the outside. And then it ends with one who is supposed to be on the inside, but is now moving to the outside. Judas takes money to betray Jesus. To do, and the word means to deliver him over, to destroy him. The chief priests and the scribes, they're they're seeking to grasp him. And that's complemented by here this one who is on the inside, close to Jesus, seeking to give them to him. They now have Jesus by deceit, by the betrayal of one who's counted among them. Judas has joined their ranks. This is sort of that outside pressure that is experienced by Christ. And you can see how this transition, we've moved from these guys trying to get him to this guy giving him. And now we're on the road to his crucifixion which makes sense of what happens in between. In verse 3, the first part of verse 3, and again, we want to take this slow. So don't worry, we're going to get there. All right, Everybody with me? Okay, we're going to get there. Verse 3, Mark says, And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, just stop there, While he was at Bethany, you see how Mark does that? And while he was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table. Why those details? Again, he's showing us what it is to be on the inside, not in Jerusalem, outside of Jerusalem, with Jesus at table. But it's not an accident that he's mentioning whose house he's at. Simon the leper, right? That's pretty, that's not subtle, right? You get that. He's probably former former leper, right? Because Jesus probably healed him. An outsider. Somebody who's not supposed to be in. Jesus is with him. Remember, this is what the leadership, they said about him. This was what their opinion of of Jesus was, that he eats with sinners and tax collectors. Yuck. We're just reminded. Here, Jesus is living out one of the reasons that they despise him. So in this place... In this leper's house or former leper's house where they're eating together with Jesus something else happens. Look at the rest of verse 3. A woman came with an alabaster, alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard. Very costly. Now just to, you imagine you're seeing you're here at the table with Jesus in the former leper's house and in walks this woman with an alabaster flask. We we don't don't go any, any further yet. Just imagine what it's like when you see her walk in with this. Mark brings it up. She's unnamed in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John says it's Mary. But she came in Perhaps this is one of those uh, socially risky moves that she's making here, right? Because these are probably all, all the guys gathered around the table, and in comes this lady. And you see this quite often in the Gospels, the introduction of someone who doesn't necessarily belong in the scene. And she comes in, and she's got this stuff, right? This. Nard imported from India. That's what one commentator says. And Mark takes the time to tell us explicitly that this is expensive stuff. Right? It could be due to price. Right? It's not afforded. Or it could speculate maybe a, 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 an heirloom. The point is, this is heavy-duty stuff that she's bringing to a dinner at the former leper's house. And then, here is the scandal. Here's where it gets crazy. So they're sitting at the table with the former leper, all sitting around. In comes this woman, flask of of nard, and then she breaks it. She broke the flask and poured it over his head. Now, how do you imagine you would feel at that point just try to try to let that settle in on you sitting there round the table Jesus former leper's house lady walks in flask breaks it pours it on Jesus head does anybody feel a little anxious Try to imagine you see this, and at the same time that this is happening, this waft of perfume hits you. This sweet smelling aroma. At the same moment that you're feeling a little horrified, that she just, just this check just broke a, and poured it on his head and didn't spill it, poured it on his head. Some say that this breaking it was an impulsive act. Right? It didn't have to be broken. She broke it. Other people say, well, you know, that's the only way you can do it. You've got to break it to get out the contents. And then in addition, some bring up that it was common to break jars to anoint dead people. And leave it in tombs. However you look at it, when you combine it with the fact that she poured it on Jesus' head, it was a sacrificial act. This was, I'm all in. This was commitment. No going back. An expensive Expensive act that couldn't be undone. What you have in what she's what she's accomplished here, what she's done, is you have a picture of sacrificial self giving. A picture of sacrificial self giving. Giving all for him. Now again, before we move forward, I want you to ponder for a moment. How would you judge her actions? You might not often think about that. How would you judge her? What would you say about what she did? What does Jesus say? Well, here's the thing. Mark puts us off. We don't get to rush in and hear what Jesus said. There's there's a stop in between. We get to hear what other people said. Remember, verse 4, there are some who said to themselves, indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And then those four words at the end. And they scalded her. Why did these people complain? Maybe they had a point. Remember, this is 300 denarii. If you look back a little bit before this, the feeding of the 5,000, there they said, well, it would take 200 denarii to feed... 5,000 people. Okay, all right, that's a lot. That's a pretty good sum of money. Put that together with Matthew 19 and Mark 10, right? Where Jesus, what did he tell the rich young ruler? Well, sell all you have and go give it to the poor. Or Zacchaeus, remember Zacchaeus? He said, hey, I'm going to give half... What I got to the poor, and I'm going to give what I need to give back to those I've defrauded. And Jesus said, hey, salvation has come to his house. Maybe they've got a point. Maybe they should be indignant. But that's the funny thing, is when you think you've got Jesus figured out, you don't. This is how he responds. But Jesus said, leave her alone why do you trouble her she has done a beautiful thing to me those statements stacked up strike me as increasingly comforting remember don't forget she is can you imagine she now maybe she was oblivious right But she is in the midst of this incredible act of worship. She's totally exposed. Totally vulnerable. And what happens? Right? Gut punch. What are you doing? Are you nuts? That's why I think it's interesting that Mark inserts this here. He lets her hang out there for a second. And then we get to hear what others thought of her. It's interesting. What Mark allows us to see is how this woman, one on the inside with Jesus, actually joins him in the life that he's been living and experiencing. That suffering, that ridicule, that confrontation. She's experiencing what it is to walk with Jesus. We're seeing, it's not being stated explicitly, but what we're seeing lived out in front of us in this scene is what it means to join with Jesus, really, really. we experience the suffering and the struggle that he does. We follow our Savior in that. But it's only after she's done that that she hears those words from her Savior. Not to her, but for her. Leave her alone why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing. Why does he say that? Why does he call it a beautiful thing? They've said it's wasteful, which, incidentally, that's only done, that's only that word's. it's like used 17 times or something. Right here, we'll geek out for a second. 17 times, and you know only two of those is that word about wasting something. You know the other times it's about? It's about ruin. It's about destruction. Usually talked about or used in reference to the wicked. So they've, ugh, really some strong language that they've used. But Jesus, on the other hand, he's called it a beautiful thing. They have said, pour nard on his head, give to the poor, nah. This is the really important thing. Jesus is saying, pour a nard on my head. Give to the poor. Nah. This. This is beautiful. Why did he say that? What would it have taken for them to applaud her actions? What would they have had to know? What would they, how would they have had to see things differently to validate what she did instead of vilify it? And let me emphasize what Jesus says at the end of that, that passage. He says, She has done a beautiful thing to me. He doesn't say, This is a wonderful thing, just a wonderful thing that she has done. This is a beautiful thing, a good, that te- literally it's just good. This is a good thing that she has done to me. And that, therein lies the difference. This little turn of phrase, I think, starts us down the road of understanding why Jesus calls this good whenever he's talked about how great it is to give to the poor. Why they're wrong and she's right. What she has done in this moment, we've alluded to this, is she has enacted her devotion to him, his importance. What she has done has an acted sacrifice showing the value of who he is. But we could still ask, why? Why did it show that? Look at verses 7 and 8. Jesus says, For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them but you will not always have me. She has done what she could, and then here's the punchline, she has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Her actions were good. Her actions made sense in relation, because of their relationship to what Jesus Was coming to do. Jesus is saying, Her action made sense because I'm about to die. This gives a laser focus. Jesus has already been telling them this. He hints at it in verse 7, right at the end of it, You're not going to always have me. All the way back in Mark chapter 8, He's been telling them, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I mean, he's been telling his disciples, I'm going to die. But they've continually missed it, or at least missed the import of what he's been saying, where everything has been heading. They keep forgetting that the Messiah must die. So, why should they have applauded her act? Why should they have seen that what she had done was a beautiful thing to him? They should have because what she did exalted the purpose for which he came. Her actions were more significant than she could have imagined. Did she know that all of this? Probably not. They should have gotten it. If we take all verses 1 through 8 together, here's, here's, kind of, here's kind of what we're seeing. During the season of Passover, remember this celebration and remembrance of the defeat of God's enemies, freeing his people from bondage by the slaughter of a sacrificial lamb. What we're seeing is during that time, the scribes and this, the, the chief priests are poised to kill the Messiah the Passover lamb, through whose sacrificial death all of God's enemies would be defeated. And true freedom from bondage would be the result. And this woman, she does two things. First, her sacrificial self-giving, it prefigures... Christ's sacrificial self-giving. She breaks and pours out Nard, Christ broken and poured out life. Like the Nard is this sweet smelling aroma. Raising up, rising up to God. And the second thing that she does, and this is right. Like in the heat of it, boots on the ground, right in the middle of it, her sacrificial act prepares him for his. She has just anointed him for death. And that makes sense of verse 9. Jesus says, and truly I say to you, and this is just, this would shock us, right? I wouldn't have expected this. Jesus, he says, and truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Her story gets told with the gospel. Why is that? Because her actions hold up the suffering and death of the Messiah for all of the world. To see. And so, what are the implications of this? What do we do? Well, what this text is doing is it's trying to shape us into the kind of people that live out a broken, poured out kind of life. This is break and pour living. And then incidentally, that's the only kind of living that a follower of Christ she holds out for us a model of life she takes what is most precious and puts it in service to the Messiah and that forces a question on you as you're reflecting on Lent, as you're reflecting on this story of sacrificial self-giving it should make you ask questions like what are the most important Precious things to me. What's most costly? What what is most dear? Would I do what that woman did? Would you? I mean, that's at least one of the questions that the Spirit is probably asking you and I right now. What would you do? How would you respond? How do you respond? Is this break and pour kind of orientation one that marks your life? What if ours is different from hers? as you ask these questions, as you sort of search the data bank of your life, it ought to disturb us when it doesn't match up. Right? Because this is what it means to follow Christ. This is what it means to belong to Him. We ought to be unnerved when break and poor is replaced by Seal and hide. How many of you have been more seal and hide than break and pour this week? I have. Our text is calling us to turn away from that. How do we get it? Our God calls us to share in the story of sacrificial self-giving, but don't misunderstand By saying what I just said, I'm not saying that we need to grunt and fight and make it happen. Right? That we need to sort of, you know, sort of, you know, get at the door here and get a running start and get some momentum and do it right. How do we get it? Living a break and poor kind of life grows out of the work of our Messiah. He was broken and poured out, suffered and died, raised to life. And those who are broken and poured out with him, they do that because they trust in him and his work that has delivered them from the bondage of sin. Those who live out a broken and poured kind of life are those who are united to him by faith, united to his death and resurrection. They are those that trust in him and received the spirit of this Messiah. We live a broken or a break and poor kind of life by the power that he gives. He has brought us in Being brought in empowers us to live that same kind of life. And what happens when we do? And here's where we match up with this woman. This forms the goal of our break and pour kind of living. We don't break and pour live so that God really likes us. We break and pour, live, because he already loves us. We break and pour, live, to exalt the work of our Messiah. When we live this way, we don't just follow the model of this unnamed woman. Remember, she prefigured Christ. When we live this way, we point to him. When we live this way we point to his power the strength that he gives to live this out. We point to his pattern. This is how our Messiah lived. We point to his mission and his work. This is what his father God of all creation sent him to do to save the world. When we live this break-and-pour kind of life. We're like her. We hold up the suffering, the death, and the resurrection of this Messiah that provides the salvation that this world needs. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, again, thank you for sending your son We thank you for providing for us in the person and work of Christ all that we needed to be restored to you. For granting to us all that we needed to come back home to you. To live as we were intended to live as your people your children glorifying and worshiping you Father, we thank you for the grace and the mercy that you pour out on us in your son and Lord we ask that what you would do in us what you did in this woman. We ask that you would shape our hearts, mold us into the kind of people that are broken and poured out, that know, that know intimately what it is to taste of this work of Christ so that we can point each other and this world to Him. Amen.